0: The thing that I found missing with a lot of people who were successful, that they were wealthy, they were Mm -hmm. unhappy, they were successful in their work, is they had no service in their life, Mm -hmm. no place to be of service. Mm -hmm. Not giving money to something, but Mm hands-on service, because we're meant to do that. If we talk about community and tribalism, everybody in the tribe did service for Mm -hmm. the rest of the tribe, Mm -hmm. and we've lost that, Mm -hmm. and that means we've
1: lost a big part of who it is that we are. That's Bobby Klein, an incredible, eclectic elder who we sadly lost just a year ago. And this is the Becoming Denizen podcast. I'm your host and curator, Jenny Stefanati. In this episode, we're talking about change from within with Bobby Klein. He was an incredibly wise elder who has an incredible life story. So he was a photographer for The Doors, really a child of that countercultural movement in the 1960s. And he had a problem with his eyes that the doctors couldn't figure out and they wanted to do surgery. And instead, Bobby knocked on the door of an acupuncturist in West Hollywood, who at first refused to treat him and then quickly cured him in 15 minutes. And Bobby wanted to learn all about acupuncture and Chinese medicine, was ultimately instrumental in bringing it to the US. He also studied clinical psychology with an emphasis on Jungian analysis. He also studied Tibetan Buddhism. He is a student of many indigenous traditions. And along the way with all these learnings, Bobby came to understand and develop his own psychic capacities. So I started working with him in 2021 and really soaked up his wisdom, integrated across many different spiritual traditions. So I wanted to release this conversation on the anniversary of his death. He's such a wise, incredible human. I miss him so dearly. So in the conversation, we we talk about a lot of things talk about how to tap into our internal wisdom and what are (laughs) the significant things that we all get wrong. He talks about the importance of listening and how to listen and the importance of community and so much more as with so many of these conversations with our elders, I feel like just want to listen to it a couple times over to just soak up all of the little nuggets of wisdom. So this one is in memory of Bobby Klein. I hope you enjoy it.
0: I come out of the period of time in the '60s. Oh, I know what I call before everything changed. It was around protesting in the Vietnam War, and we saw the Summer of Love end pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And it ended for me in Century City when we were protesting the war, and I got hit with a club in the wow. in my camera lens. But oh, that wow. was indicative of what was happening, and and. You know, the time of peace, love, and brown rice changed pretty rapidly. <laughs> well, things did change, and it was the time of love-ins and be and when we really gathered together. And it wasn't said that we were gathering together to make change, but we gathered together to see what was possible. As a teacher, I usually start my lectures with, uh, I feel it's my responsibility to teach what I learned in that time, what we loosely call the Summer of Love. We saw that we could live together peacefully, that it didn't matter how much money you had, what your position in the world was, what sex you were. It didn't matter. Whatever was there that we were in this loose community where people looked out for each other. I just remember one story at a, at a human being like they had in Griffith Park in, in L.A. where I had a big load of cameras. I was a working photographer and I left him down by a tree and I got up on top of a camper to take some photographs, and I was up there. for. I left my cameras for about an hour down by a tree, and, and I, when I went down, they were still there. And that was, if I did that today in a park and I left 10 grand where the cameras on the floor, they'd probably be gone. But that was a different time. We saw a possible way to live. I talked to my ex-wife a couple of years ago. And we figured that I was in Laurel Canyon. We figured we fed maybe 2,000 people during those couple of years, 67, 68. And people would trade. They would come by something to trade. They'd help work in the house. But people came through and they were travelers. And we all came together. And the talk was about It was some talk about drugs, but lots of talk about politics, about just what was happening and what was happening in that time for all of us, feeling under the gun in many ways, the hippie generation, we were being stopped on the street to be searched and for what that was, and we had our protest that was called the Sunset Strip Riots, and that was something that placed us pretty well in society. I opened a restaurant about that time, and uh, it was the first organic restaurant in L.A. Jack Nicholson was my financial partner, and so the crowd that we got was an incredible crowd, and the people who came in, it was you know, the likes of Tim Leary and Governor Brown and, and that, and it was a, a, a way of, really, it was a way of teaching. And about what was possible. We didn't charge a lot of money. We had great food. But it was a business in a different way. Everybody there was a part owner. Mm. And we had a good a good few years. And as I transitioned out of there, I had some trouble with my eyes. And I was under a lot of stress, smoking too much dope. And my eyes were red and achy and I was losing my vision. Nobody could fix it, but somebody told me about an acupuncturist in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And I went up a back stairway in Chinatown and the light, there was the light bulb hanging from a, a wire in the hallway. And I knocked on the door and he opened the door and he saw me in those days. My hair was down in the middle of my back and you know, I was wearing moccasins and beads and feathers. And he slammed the door said, no doctor here, but I was insistent. And he finally let me in, fixed me in 15 minutes, and then I convinced him to teach me. And so I I spent about three years with him, and then, then we opened a clinic that's now the East West Medicine Clinic. So as we saw, again, what was possible, we were teaching doctors. I started a research facility at University of California at Davis, for dogs, cats, and horses. And it was really to prove that acupuncture worked, that it wasn't all in your mind because you can't convince a horse he's going to get better by putting a few needles in his back. And that led Mm. me to being interested in indigenous information, indigenous people. And that that's where I felt a lot of the, because I was studying with old men for me at that time. I'm now one of the old men, (laughs) but the guys who were about my age as i am now to study with them and that, and that led me to travel through parts of south america east asia and studied with some masters i was taken in i've been very fortunate to have mm-hmm. great teachers in my life and we talk about change within that really is what my practice is about i consult with corporations I consult with big companies, and that's where I want to teach. I want to lecture to big groups who are active in the middle of things, in the middle of business, in the middle of politics, so that we can make change from within. And by going into the indigenous teachers, the elders, to bring the elders' information Mm -hmm. out now. And what's very interesting The planet in her wisdom now, people are living to be older and older. And I think because of this great change that we're going through right now, that the planet's wisdom is having more elders on the planet. Mm. Because in that change, we need the wisdom of the elders. And I believe the elders will start to be respected. Uh, The indigenous elders will start to be heard. And we see that more and more. I'm one of the few white elders teaching, it is that I teach, and it's led me to do things where I'm bringing elders from different communities in, bringing teachers in, Mm -hmm. and allowing people to see what it's like to live in a community of wisdom and what that does for you. And sometimes it's the wisdom that you pick up, but it's the wisdom of the community, and that we get the wisdom of the community moving, we then begin to open.
1: You've studied so many different wisdom traditions, and I'm curious, what are the things that are bubbling up for you that are the most pertinent and relevant right now? I know there's not one, but just I'm I'm curious, what are the things that are top of mind?
0: It's a time of compassion. Mm. And I have a lot of trouble when people say that forgiveness is where we should be in Mm. the world and society. Forgiveness is not really an action, Mm. but compassion is an action. And by us having compassion for the people that we know worked with, even the ones that wronged us, mm. it allows us to move forward and to mm. be and to be free.
1: Are you familiar with Adrian Marie Brown's work? No, I was just reading her work last night. She's phenomenal. I'm so resonant, and she just wrote this little teeny pamphlet. Essentially, I was reading on the plane around transformative justice. And it was really interesting. She distinguished between punitive justice. You talked about forgiveness, which made me think of it, which is the norm versus restorative justice, which is a more prominent conversation versus transformational justice. And what she really points her finger at is how essential it is for the movements themselves to embody the modality of being of this just society and future and not replicate the harms that have been done onto them, onto others for punitive purposes or as an attempt for their own healing. And I find her work so fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. It just brought me to mind It was speaking about the elders. You know, the elders are not normal people. They're weird people, actually. (laughs) And I believe all of us, all of us that are trying to make change are weird. And if we come back to the origin of the word weird, W-Y-R-D, it talks about us following our song line, following our song line through our lifetime. And in that is how we make change by being present and by being in our truth. Mm -hmm. And the things that are going to make the difference now is people, one, is finding their truth. And finding the ways not to repeat the patterns that they've been stuck in, the ones that they got from parents, mm-hmm. from school, from government and everything that was laid upon us. That's where the elders, that's where the indigenous mm. elders, and that's where actual process comes in. People can talk a lot about what we can do and what we need to do, but what I found mm-hmm. lacking is process is mm-hmm. process.
1: Well I and, think, that's, mm-hmm. and
0: that's what I teach.
1: I think also, well, there's, gosh, there's so much. Okay. And this is what you talk about, finding your true self. And I'm so interested in this. How have we internalized these narratives, systemic oppression, what success looks like, what worthiness is about, and how hard it is to parse that out from what's true. And I'm I'm actually really curious about, and, and a lot of what I talk about often is the how do we use our heads? And we're so intellectual, we're especially intellectual here. But how do we leverage our other sources of knowledge? And Donella Meadows is an extraordinary thinker who has talked about the the urgency and complexity of the moment and the need to bring our whole of humanity and how envisioning comes from something intuitive and deep and not intellect. So I'm, I'm really curious about when we talk about finding one's truth and the patterns that are stuck inside, How do you think about the elders and what they have to teach us and our bodies and our intuition and what it has to teach us in sloughing off what we've internalized and finding our true selves?
0: In my practice and in groups, what I hear is I want to know what my purpose is Uh in life. Why am I here? And uh, that's the existential question. Why am I here and why was I born? And what I find is, is that's where this indigenous wisdom comes from. Mm -hmm. I mean, I live in Tulum, which is in the Mayan territory. And in the Mayan culture, it's ceremonial. And that's one of the things that Western society has lost, Mm. is lost ceremony. Like right now, we're in a ceremony. We're in a community and we're doing ceremony. Mm. And that's what people lose and don't have that process.
1: This is so fascinating. Are you familiar with the book Braiding Sweetgrass? It's, yes, uh, it's, yes, uh, it's of a, a, Yeah, of course. <laughs> she had some really interesting things to say about ceremony. She talked about how the Western cultures, they took ceremony and they focused on the ceremony of the self the birthdays and the life moments and they lost a lot of the indigenous cultures had. it was like the ceremony of our connection to to nature and to the land and ceremony around solstices and things like that and she talked about how cultures have to find their own new traditions you can't import the traditions that other cultures before them had Oh, sorry, the ceremonies themselves. I, I'm curious just what your thinking is around, when you talk about ceremony, the need from ceremony, how does those new ceremonies get established?
0: I don't think it is new. They're not new. But I believe that ceremony is a creative form mm. and that we might have some... Things we might use, we might use fire, we might use incense, we might use mm. salt, might use water. Mm. And doing dogmatic ceremony, like in the Catholic Church, it goes over and over in the same mm-hmm. thing. And it's a good way to focus, I've got no problem. But as far as someplace where you can grow, mm. some place where you can find out more about yourself and find your passion. Mm-hmm. And pretty much, you want to make change, find your passion. And then your change is going to come. And then you're going to be, I mean, I I make kind of a joke and I say that ritual is so important with the Mayans that if they had a good breakfast, they have a ritual for it. Mm. But in some ways it's true. Mm. And that knowing that you have a ceremonial life, that there's a ceremony that where you're doing. And it's important for us to find that. And the simple things like Mm -hmm. our morning Mm -hmm. cup of tea or cup of coffee has a ceremony and has a ritual. And then with our children to have rituals with our children so that they can understand Mm -hmm. just what that opening is. I remember a story with my son. Now my son's now almost fifty. But when we were living together and he would say to me, uh, Dad, when I have my friends over, could you kind of put the incense and candles away, you know, so I could be there? And I yeah, I said, sure, we have some up and it was there. And then about oh, six, eight months later, I didn't know where he was. I thought he was in his room. So I went down to his room, door was closed. And I said, you OK? "See, said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, nothing, nothing. And I opened the door. so He had set up his own altar. Mm. his own place to pray. Mm. And that's what we need. We need a place of focus. Mm. And that's what I find. When I was in L.A., I worked with the big utility companies, the boards of directors, bringing them to a place where they could understand that Mm. this coming together as a board of directors, it's a ritual. Mm. And that by allowing yourself to be in your truth that a lot could get done and a lot could get changed.
1: Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about this too. She talked about the the same actions done with intention and focus and presence becoming ceremony that would be just everyday things. You talked about that with the tea.
0: Right. With beautiful tea ceremonies. I worked for the prison system at uh, Lompoc. I was a lecturer and bringing ritual and ceremony in for the prisoners the feedback i got it became a more peaceful place that there was some place mm-hmm. that you could focus and some place that you could be quiet because the truth is about meditation or about praying is coming to quiet mm-hmm. coming to silence and listening and one of the big mm-hmm. things that we've lost in our world our busy world is listening people sit i mean how many times you sat in a conversation And you realize, oh, shit, I I didn't hear what the last five minutes about what that person Mm -hmm. said, because you're not there, you're not present, Mm -hmm. is to keep us and to learn how to listen, because Mm -hmm. listening is a skill. Mm -hmm. And when we get to that place, and that's what blows relationships apart, (laughs) people don't listen to each other. And they don't hear... I make the analogy, little Johnny goes to school and he comes home and says, mommy, mommy, Stephen kicked me, pushed me down the stairs, took my lunch money and hurt my arm. And mommy, regular mommy said, well, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to talk to that teacher and the kid's parents. That's not what Johnny wanted. Johnny wanted her mother just to listen and to hold him mm, and say, oh, yeah. honey, that must be really hard. Mm, yeah. Because then as it goes farther, Johnny didn't get what he wants. Mm. And then mommy says, I don't know what it is. Johnny doesn't talk to me anymore. Mm. And that's the same with couples. Mm. That's the same with couples who do not come to the place where they are hearing each other, where they're listening to each other. And
1: Bobby works with both individuals and couples. So you've seen a lot of this play out over the years, I am sure. Well, I, want, I don't want to interrupt you. I do have some questions, but I want to let you keep talking, and then I'll, I'll go back to a couple of key things. I was just making the point about
0: wisdom, about listening, and do you think that Palestine and Israel could listen to each other? Mm. Why doesn't that happen? Why isn't there listening? And I think that that's what we see in politics. I see it in corporations, and I see mm-hmm. it with the clients that I work with. And we talk about indigenous wisdom, but it's the old stuff. It's back where we come from. If we all go far enough back in our history, mm-hmm. in our ancestry, we will get back to an indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. And if we can bring forward that mm-hmm. indigenous culture into this time mm-hmm. and place, then we're, we're miles ahead, miles ahead. What questions do you have?
1: Yeah. So I want to ask something more specific. And then I'm actually really interested in your choice of of working with businesses in particular. And I want to see how that ties into what we've been talking about here and just the broader theory of change, how you think about the theory of change from change from within. But I want to start with a more focused question that I'm really interested in. You mentioned the collective and the community wisdom. I'm just really interested to hear a little bit more from you when you say collective wisdom. How do you see that emerging or coming into being
0: it's you know Jung coined the word synergy, and that's what it is. Mm. It's the synergistic coming together of people. It's this combination or this mixing, if you, if you will, of certainly different cultures, but of people at different places operating at different harmonics, different frequencies. Ah. We are all frequencies. That's We know that that's true. When I studied acupuncture, I had to learn a song in Chinese. That was the name of the 365 main acupuncture points. I didn't know what it meant, but I learned to sing it. I was a good student. When I learned to translate Chinese, which I did for the I Ching book that I have, Mm -hmm. that I learned to I saw that the names of the acupuncture points were the names of the planets and stars. Mm. How do we get electricity to move our arms, to have our heartbeat? It's cosmic energy that comes into Mm. us. And acupuncture points are just a name we've given to receptors. Mm. So we are all transmitters and receptors. And when we come together in community... Then we double it, we triple it, we quadruple mm. it. And it's like Terrence McKenna talked about the I Ching and about how that with the wisdom of the I Ching it comes through ones and zeros. Mm. And that when we're coming together as a community, we come together with different frequencies and different energies, we become better receivers and better transmitters. And then comes the time that that we can share that part of our life that Mm -hmm. we're living. And then we come back to what I was talking Mm -hmm. about is coming back to your passion and coming back to what's your purpose? What's your purpose Mm -hmm. in life? The thing that I found missing with a lot of people who were successful, that they were wealthy, they were Mm -hmm. unhappy, they were successful, and they were, is they had no service in their life. Mm. No place to be of service. Not giving money to something, but Mm hands-on service. Because we're meant to do that. If we talk about community and tribalism, everybody in the tribe did service for the rest of the tribe. Mm-hmm. And we've lost that. Mm-hmm. And that means we've lost a big part of who it is that we are.
1: Oh, gosh. And that I find that really fascinating. And I loved and I actually wrote down the word harmonics and synergy. And obviously, synergy is something that's come up a lot in Buckminster Fuller, who we talk about quite a bit here as well.
0: I was part of Westwood University with Bucky. Mm. When Bucky was first doing his had university classes and I was just coming into my own and acupuncture was a lot of interest and Mister Fuller had Westwood University, which talked a lot about what a government architecture. It was the idea about how do we fix planet Earth, you know, the spaceship Earth. But you see, I think that that's what we're doing now. I mean, we're building a new manual mm. and what you're doing is making a new manual. Mm. So, because we need to have some place to go. Yep. And that's what's been lacking. No yeah. place to go. No yeah. place to go for in- information.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's actually been really fascinating. We had a conversation about stakeholder capitalism. And that's this kind of, I would say, all the rage in talking about what, you know, what the state of business should be today. And I really challenged it and said, I, I don't think that's the end goal. And this is why, and people have said, you know, that was the most visionary and clear and informative conversations I've heard about this topic in years. And I think it is that we know that something's wrong and we're trying to fix it. And we're not taking the time to step back and actually say, wait a minute, wait a minute. where are we actually going? People are putting one foot in front of the other. And people aren't really taking the time to step back and say, what is the end goal and how do we get there? So with respect to capitalism, where we've spent so much of our time, very few people, as far as I can tell, have really stepped back and said, well, wait a minute, when we add up all these things, what do we get? And Is that sustainable over the long haul? It's taken me a year to get here, but, but I have a sense for it now. But I do think that the way that we architect our lives doesn't really give time and space for that. And then once you know where you're going-ish, then the path to get there becomes part of the question. I'm very curious. You were talking about how you work with businesses in your work today, and and it sounds like you see that as a real leverage point. Obviously, businesses have become more centered around overall employee experience and well-being and mindfulness, and you're starting to see meditation rooms show up in offices when there were offices. I'm curious, what is your take on this rise of of corporate wellness culture, if you would call it that? Sounds like it feels like an opportunity. I feel like business looks at it as a business opportunity. So I'm curious, what's your take on that trend?
0: Well, but I think it's, again, it's about communication. It's about witnessing and being able to trust somebody in your business or trust someone that you're with to come into a place where you can be heard. Mm. Because again, people don't hear each other. And I think it's about communication. And that's what I work on if I when I work with either small groups as small as a, a boardroom, mm-hmm. but as large as a group of employees putting them together so that they can find what their truth is. Yeah. And so having a place for meditation is incredible, or a place for yoga. Mm. But what it is above that is it's people coming together with yeah. something in common that mm. is not business. Yeah. You mentioned about a goal, and what is the goal, and I'm, I'm just reminded about tribes, and, and I you know, I lived with the Hopi and some of the other, I visited a number of other tribes. But part of the tribes, there were runners that mm-hmm. would run, and they would run from over the mountains. They would run to other towns, other tribes, and they would run through the mountains on the path through the forest, and mm-hmm. they would just run and run and mm-hmm. run and run. But they had no goal. They had no Mm. goal. It wasn't about to get somewhere on time. It wasn't about to cross the finish line. But they were running. And then what the community did is the community would have great celebrations where they would have great feasts. The runners were not at the feasts, Mm. but the feasts fed the runners while they were running. Mm. And that's the way the community worked. And so it was was moving. And we are the runners. We're Mm. all running. And if we take that into mind, that all the celebration that happens and all that can feed us as runners, mm. that we're moving. And it doesn't mean that you're a frantic runner, but you're on the road. And not to look at what, you know, it, you know it's an old saw where you say, it's not the goal, it's the journey. But that really is true. And what happens in corporations is we understand we're sharing, we're sharing the journey. Mm. Corporations are recognized as an entity, but as an entity without a soul. Right. And that's, that's where the problems come
1: from. That is a quote for us to hold on to for posterity. So I'm going to bookmark that for that purpose. Well, I also think it's so interesting. Actually, for me, I used to be really into working out and I went to the gym and I went to boot camp and then I discovered Bikram yoga and Bikram yoga was the very athletic yoga. It gave me a good workout. And then that led to vinyasa yoga, which led to Ashtanga yoga, which led to a daily meditation practice, right? And so it's interesting these western cultural backdoors to the spiritual practices in the same way that the the corporate spiritual culture the corporate wellness culture that I mentioned earlier kind of brings people in but then once you start sitting and once you start turning inwards once you start as you mentioned focusing and being quiet you start to be able to hear and it happens whether that's your intention or not eventually I mean that's one of the things I love about yoga
0: we talk about making change from within, yeah. and that's what it's about, because we can touch one person, it's the pebble in the pond. Mm-hmm.
1: So let me ask, is there anything else we need to know about your overarching theory of change? So obviously, you know the scope of the conversation here. What you do is very much part of it. We have a similar theory of change around embodying the future and understand that that deep internal work is is very much part and parcel to that transformation. I feel like we've got a sense of the theory of change. I just want to make sure that there wasn't anything missing in terms of how you were thinking about it.
0: Well, it's, it certainly is changing our patterns that we have in our, in our life and taking the time to see what the old patterns were. But the big one is, is to stop lying to ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And, about, to, yeah. and to
0: have a brave heart enough to really look at what are the lies that we're telling ourselves. And I do a lot of that in my group work is on witnessing each other where people are in a safe place to tell where they've been lying to themselves. Mm. And when you move away from the lies that you've been telling yourself about your work, about your body, about your brain, about your intimacy, whatever it is, that you come to clarity.
1: Mm. And are the lies that are pervasive?
0: Well, yes, I believe. I believe so. You know, it's well. A lot of it's the lies of trying to be like others, or or trying to change ourselves mm. to fit into a a certain group. We want to look one way, or we want to act one way, or we want to talk some way, and we lie to ourselves. You know, we lie to ourselves, and the big one is, I'm not good enough. Ugh. That's the big lie. I find- And when we get through that place, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, no, and when we get through to that place
0: we get through to that place where we stop those lies to ourselves mm. and realize the truth is we can do anything. Mm. And that really is true. Mm. We can. And there's ways to get there. And again, I said, there's got to be places to go. Mm. There's got to be a new book, a new manual, a mm. new Bible, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever however
1: mm-hmm. we're going to. Do it yeah
0: but we got to have a place to go and I believe that's what you know is why I, w- I was looking forward to talking to you because this is what's going to change the world mm. you know it will be people coming together in their truth
1: one of the things that I found so fascinating this is a, an insight from my personal experience and also something that uh, Adrienne Marie Brown touched on and I was reading her her stuff yesterday was this question of worthiness. And this question of what determines worthiness, right? And I'm somehow more worthy than you because I went to Harvard and because I have more followers and because I have more money or because I am more ambitious and you're less worthy because you stay home with your kid. I mean, it's just, and where do these senses of worthiness and stories and narratives come from? And there's this amazing young man named Davian Zaire who just blows my mind away. He's 27 years old. And he's like, you're worthy by virtue of being. (laughs) <laughs> and that's just such an extraordinary, Amen. Amen. such an extraordinarily important yeah. message. And I'm so glad that you mentioned it in this conversation. We've talked about how the essence of what you do is helping people find that true self inside. And Bobby, as I've said, is just a truly a living legend. And I want to soak up as much of you as I possibly can while I still can. And hopefully that will be for quite a good while.
0: We got to dig in, into mm. our soul and that's getting to the uh, to the basics of who we are and we come into transformation. And transformation is where we go to revive this idea of a soul. And I was blessed to have a teacher, Joseph Campbell, and Mr. Campbell said that we are monads, traveling, getting different costumes in different lifetimes, but our monad is our soul that we're traveling with. It's about equanimity, about peace, about wisdom, but doing it through celebration and allowing ourselves to have that transformation. Mm. Again, some place to go We talk about living in the light and the the light is what illuminates our life path and coming to that place about what is it? Is it yoga that helps us? Is it meditation? Is it dancing? Is it coming around to fire? Is it meeting the indigenous elders? What's all of that?
1: I'd love to hear any reflections or questions you have for Bobby. Sure. Thanks, Jenny. And Bobby. thank you for being here. This is such a pleasure. I was really looking forward to today. I did just wanted to mention one thing, the kind of practice of things. I think a lot of people are looking for the how to kind of get to their peace or kind of get through to what they're working toward. And I just find that most people look for something quick. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how our society right now has that mindset of kind of looking for something quick in their approach to personal growth or healing
0: yeah I think it, it, it's certainly it's not about the quick fix. I mean that's that's obvious it's not about the quick fix. and people who sell the quick fix, it fades away. But work that I do even in my practice and I mean in my practice, I give lots of homework. There's a lot to do, and you bring this ceremony and ritual into your life and to get process, just to be good, practical, uncomplicated. And everything I teach is not complicated. It's really simple. My meditations are simple. My processes are simple. And I believe the more simple things are, the more they get it, they get inside of us and they become really a part of us. So there is no quick fix. And like I said before, it's a never ending path. It's a long and winding road. Mm. You
1: know? Thank you. And one of the things I love too is the idea that you commit to a practice. It's not that you have the answer and suddenly (laughs) the problem is solved. Systemic racism is done. We sat in a workshop and it's done, right? It's you commit to a practice. Joe, it's great to see you. I'd love to hear any questions or reflections for Bobby.
0: Hey, Jenny. Hey, Bobby. It's lovely to be here soaking in this conversation. The question that I have for you, what's coming up for me, I'd love to hear your thoughts around it's the aspect of community. I'm discovering that to do my inner work, I'm requiring people close to me and sustain deep relationships to be able to hold each other. And yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how community plays into this kind of wider unfolding that we're talking about. We're not alone. Mm. You know, the loneliness that is happening in the world, you know, even that people are so isolated and they're feeling alone and mm. it's that loneliness that eats away at your heart, eats away at your soul. But if we have a community of like-minded souls, ones that we can be with, that we can Mm. trust, that then we're supported. And it's what I talked, you know, when I talked about synergy, but I also talked about the word energy is so overused, but it is this energy, this uh, etheric body that we have, that we share. And it is that, you know, one plus one makes 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 when we come together. And that's what community is about. And I believe that community is what will save the planet. Will Mm. the planet ever be taken out? I don't believe that will happen. But I do believe that if we come together in community,
1: Mm. that
0: we come together to start a new way of governing, a new way Mm. of learning, to reestablish the learning system, the educational system. This happened in our world. I certainly taught one of the United States with my kids that the educational system, the kids were overwhelmed, but nobody gave them a thread to hold on mm. to. I don't know what the what the figure was. This is a figure that was, I think it was, it was in the Times about 25, 30 years ago, is that by the time a young person is out of second or third grade, mm. they've gotten more information than the New York Times has been for the last 100 years, Mm. and the kids are overwhelmed by this, Mm. and that we've got to give them a thread, and Mm. community can do that, because Mm. the old need to teach the young. I just sent a letter out to about mycelium that grows in a forest. Mm. Mycelium is that underground network of of, Of uh, fungus. that goes from tree to tree. So if one tree is sick on one part of Mm. the forest, The Mm -hmm. strong trees send them healing, send them hormones, send them nutrients, and that. And the older trees feed the younger trees. And ideally, that's what we are in that kind of community, where we are feeding the young, we're feeding the sick, that we are joining together. And in that, we're doing something, and we're doing something together. And that's when I come back to the idea of service. Mm. Community is about service.
1: I found it so interesting also, I meant to mention this earlier when you talked about service, it made me think of Burning Man. It's a 70,000 person scale experiment of service and giving And I find it so absolutely fascinating because you don't realize that there is something beyond these boundaries of human society that you just take as as human nature. And when you see something happening at the scale, it's just fascinating when you realize (laughs) there are are other crayons in the crayon box that you didn't know existed. Is it okay if we take one more question from Noah? I'm fine. Okay, go ahead.
0: Bobby, I want to ask about listening,
1: Mm. Um, especially
0: listening As it relates to community and the unavoidable power dynamics that come in the middle of community. For myself, I'm an ensemble musician and a pastor. And so listening is something that for me is, I spend a lot of time practicing listening in a lot of different ways. But I think I want to use the example actually that you brought up a while ago, which was the Israel Palestine Mm. and the reality there, as just a way of focusing. What does listening look like? in a power differential. Because that's Mm. really, in my experience, that's actually almost always how listening happens. There's some sort of power differential. And so I'd just love to hear anything you have to say Uh. about what it is to be community, to listen with an explicit awareness of power dynamics. Uh. If we take it away from something as big as Israel and Palestine, and take it to a smaller idea, smaller community, a community of 10, 50, and 100, whatever it is. But the idea of the old African talking stick, I don't know if you're familiar with that, where the talking stick gets passed Mm -hmm. and whoever has it, they can talk and nobody else can talk. And I teach what I call the first five minutes. I do it with couples. I do it with partners in business. I do it with families. And what it is, is that if it's with two people, Each person has five minutes to tell where they're at, what's going on with them, what they're feeling, what they're feeling about the other person, what they're feeling about the world, feeling about themselves, what's good, what's bad, and they cover that in five minutes. The rules are, is that the listener can't roll their eyes or make a comment. All they do is listen. And the rule is that the listener can never, ever bring up what the speaker has said, ever. That then when when the- listener has the floor to speak, they can't refer to what they just heard in that five minutes. Mm. What it sets up is a time of safety. And what I find is, is that it spills over into the, sometimes into the corporate culture, but certainly in the of relationships, that people then stop listening and stop trying to mm. give advice. The big rule for me is working with people and, and for myself in my life is, Never give anyone advice unless they ask for it, oh. ever. Now, <laughs> now if, if you have employees, certainly give them advice. And if you have children, you give them advice about health and safety. Mm. But you don't give advice unless it's asked for Because if the advice mm. works, the person ends up resenting you because they didn't figure it out themselves. And then, of course, mm. if that doesn't work. So <laughs> that this listening happens where people really start to hear each other and don't feel they have to make a comment. They can just hear it and not have to make a comment, not have to try to fix it. And that men are built to be the fixer. They want to fix it. And I've had it happen a few times, Mm. where a woman will be, she's at work in her life, and the guy's getting interested in her, but she's feeling uncomfortable. And it's not safe to mention that Mm. at home, right? Because, you know, I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna, whatever that is, right? But if it happens in a safe place, then she's heard. And then all yeah. the heat's gone off of it. Mm. Then it just spills into daily life, is people can just hear each other and not feel they have to comment, nor do they have to feel that they have to be the wise one. That's where I feel that really listening really, really happens. Mm. And that's where listening can really work. I mean, it's certainly from the point of view of a, of a musician, it's remembering that everything that we're doing right now, everything I teach, everything we're talking about is code. The Quran is code, hmm. music is code, it's all code. And everybody hears the code differently. And if we allow ourselves the time to translate that code, right? It's like we all see a painting. Everybody sees it differently. It's not we don't see it the same. We're seeing the code as that code affects us, what it triggers in us, and what it opens. Mm. And that when you're given time to listen, that code can come through. The Bible's code. The Quran is code. Mm. The Bhagavad Gita is code. And so whether you're reading it, when you're praying, you're doing that, you're encoding that into yourself, into your personality, into your soul, if you will. And that's where I feel that real, real listening comes mm. in. The poet Rilke, he wrote in a beautiful letter about relationship. He said, the reason for choice or rejection is, can I trust that person to protect my solitude? Mm. And will they in turn have us stand at the gate of theirs? And that's beautiful. That's listening. That's being present. Mm. And I guess we could turn around to being present. Hey, look, old Ram Dass said it, man. He said, be here now. And that's that's it. That if we can really be present and being present doesn't mean talking.
1: Mm. Oh, that's beautiful you know i had some reflections but that's where this conversation wants to end and i will save the rest of them for next time this has been amazing All right bobby this is perfect i'm excited to send this out to everyone and and hopefully people will see or hear with their own ears how how special you are and how lucky we are for every minute that we get to spend just learning from you. I just, I'm so honored that you're here. I'm so honored to know you. You know this. And I just want to thank you so much for your time today.
0: Oh yeah, you bet. This has been a real gift to (laughs) to be with you.
1: Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Scott Hansen, also known as Tycho, for our musical signature. In addition to this podcast, you can find resources for each episode on our website, www.becomingdenizen.com, including transcripts and background materials. For our most essential topics like universal basic income, decentralized social media, and long-term capitalism, we also have posts summarizing our research, which make it easy for listeners to very quickly get an overview of these particularly important and foundational topics. On our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter where we bring our weekly podcast to your inbox alongside other relevant denizen information. Subscribers are invited to join our podcast recordings and engage with the denizen community in our online home, The Den. We're partnered with some incredible organizations at the forefront of the change that we talk about. We share announcements from them in our newsletter as well. Finally, this podcast is made possible by support from the denizen community and listeners like you denizens content will always be free offering denizen as a gift models a relational rather than a transactional economy enabling denizen to embody the change that we talk about on this podcast through the reciprocity of listeners like you that we are able to continue producing this content you can support us or learn more about our gift model on our website again that's www.becomingdenizen.com thanks again for listening and I hope you'll join us next time